Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the Womankind podcast. Um, I'm Kelsey, your host, and we're going to continue our journey of answering the question, what does it mean to be a woman? And now we're in the year 2017, not 2016. So what it means to be a woman in the year 2017. So this week, I am joined by Shannon O'Sullivan, who is one of my oldest friends. We've been friends since sixth grade. And we've been talking on the phone for hours <laughs> since sixth grade. So this is really just a recording of one of our conversations from the past. How many years? Is that like 20 years? Yeah. That's a really long time. Do a couple decades. <laughs> sure. yeah. um, and so Shannon, I'm just going to give her a brief introduction, but we'll get into her story a little bit later in the podcast. Um, she is a doctoral candidate and instructor in media studies and communication and has a graduate certificate in women and gender studies from CU Boulder. Um, so she's more than qualified to be here. Um, I just have a couple little things to mention before we get into our topic today. Um, and I also realized last week my guest was Jen O'Donnell. This week my guest is Shannon O'Sullivan. Apparently I only have Irish friends Irish and yeah. Irish <laughs> guests on my <laughs> podcast. Um, so I hope everyone's okay with that. So something we forgot to mention last week is that Jen actually has a feminist-themed comedy show. Um, so if you ever find yourself in the Los Angeles area, um, it's the third Wednesday of every month, and it's called The Ladies' Room Stand-Up Comedy Show. Um, and that takes place at the Three Clubs Bar in Hollywood. Um, and if you're interested, like them on Facebook. It's called The Ladies' Room Comedy. So check it out. All right, another thing that we needed to address from last week, uh, we got into the question of why women change their last names and some of the history behind it, and I really had no idea. Did you, have you, do, do you have an idea, Shannon? A, a little bit about the kind of Western tradition, mm -hmm. but not, too, my knowledge isn't too extensive. As somebody who didn't change their last name, maybe I felt that I didn't have to <laughs> investigate as much, but it hasn't come up too much. So I, I've kind of got deep into the hole of my research on this. I mean, it's still it's still pretty shoddy research, but <laughs> I um, I got some basics down here, and maybe I did learn this at some point, but I must I must have forgotten. So, um, so this is actually, and I I do want to specify that this is in Western culture specifically. So, other cultures may have um, different customs, but um, typically in Western culture, women take their husband's last name. And this is a little bit of the history of why. And this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh. So we know it's good. <laughs> the Western source <laughs> of information, yes. Um, so I got into coverture, which if you're a lawyer, you know that word. If you're not, you probably don't. Um, and so I'm just going to read this to you. And it sounds really dense and boring, but just bear with me. Um, so it's an Anglo-American common law concept derived from feudal Norman custom, which, you know, they were always on point, those Normans, <laughs> um, that dictated a woman's subordinate legal status during marriage. Um, prior to marriage, a woman could freely execute a will, enter into contracts, sue or be sued in her own name, and sell or give away her real estate or personal property as she wish, wished. Once she was married, however, her legal existence as an individual was suspended under marital unity, <laughs> a legal fiction in which the husband and wife were considered a single entity. 
the husband. How romantic. Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't oppression so romantic? Oh my gosh. And so I also had to look up the term legal fiction, which is did you did you know what this was? As somebody who used to work work for a law firm, you think I would, but I don't actually. It's something that's like objectively untrue, <laughs> but under the law we pretend that it's true to make laws work. That was my understanding of Interesting. it. Interesting. Um so I think I have it's disturbing. A lot of things <laughs> that fall under legal fiction. Yeah, we can think of a few. But yeah, that's uh, that's the long and the short of it. And actually, um, this coverture law was in effect in the United States until about the 1830s. And guess who was the first to overturn it? I re- Utah, right? Was Mississippi. It, oh, was it Mississippi? When is Mississippi the first at anything? I, this is unless it's and a I, negative, right? But yes, I, and but I'm I'm sorry if you live in Mississippi. Yeah, deep South folks, <laughs> you know, we're up here in New York. We're just we we think we're, we're Yankees. I know. I'm sorry. We don't know, but. But that is surprising, and, you know, credit where it's due. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I, that was the history. So if you were interested, um, maybe you're not. But that sums it up, where that tradition comes from. And obviously it's trickled down over the years, and some of those connotations have been lost. Um, but there it is. <laughs> there it is. That's why it is. Um. So just some other things that I found in my my deep searching. Um, So according to an article from Time Magazine, it is illegal in Quebec for a woman to take her husband's last name. It's illegal. Illegal. Yes. Since 1981. Those they've been trying to do a lot of, you know, rogue things Mm -hmm. over the years. And And there's a similar law in Greece and in France and Italy and the Netherlands. So you just retain your yes. surname from you, birth. You must keep the name that is on your birth certificate oh, legally. Interesting, because I, I have an interesting opinion on that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not let's interesting, but, well, I think it should just be a matter of choice. So mm-hmm. I don't agree with the state mm-hmm. sort of determining one way or the other what you should do with your surname. So kind of interesting, because I remember there was a, a study that was done, I think it was at Indiana University. It was within the last five or six years or so, because I actually did come across it when I was engaged, but that they did a poll, this was just a scientific poll, where they asked, general opinion, do you think women should change their last name or not upon marriage, mm-hmm. etc.? And actually, a pretty large majority not only stated that women should change their last name, but it should be against the law to retain mm-hmm. your father's surname, because that's what you'd be doing. And I just thought either way, I said, that's so strange that people think it should enter into kind of the legal realm where it should be restricted and that, you know, the state should dictate your surname. So that's kind of unusual. But this is just a general opinion poll. Mm -hmm. But I was surprised at the relatively high number of respondents who said, no, women should be required by law to change their last name. So so that was was kind of interesting. So so my other opinion on that is then you shouldn't be required by law to keep it. You should just, women should have the choice to do what they want with their surname. So... I agree with that, yeah. and I think the to clarify the there these are in a legal capacity, like in Italy and um, France and the Netherlands. Um, socially, women do take on their husband's last name, but mm. but legally they are not able to. But you're right that who right why is that such a big deal? Yeah, I don't know why the state would have to get involved in that regard. So it's a little bit anti-democratic in that sense. Mm. And Quebec, their idea behind it was to make sure that there's more equality among last names, so that a lot of women are keeping their last name and 
mm. extending it. Interesting. And then what happens? Is there any kind of legal parameters regarding if they have children and which? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Because this is the kind of thing that comes up too. Because mm-hmm. I always kind of joke when people ask about, you know, people assume that I've taken my husband's last mm-hmm. name all the time, and because it's still relatively rare, I'm still part of a relatively small number of women who are legally married and chose to retain their last name. But it's interesting because I always say that my husband and I both retained our father's surnames because you're having your father's name as well. It's not, so there's something to that too, which I think is kind of, kind of fascinating, but, but you know, it's just one of those traditions that people are deeply invested in apparently and not just men, obviously women as well. So it's just so common in the culture. And I think when something becomes so naturalized, people get a little destabilized when they feel like a tide is turning and things are being upended a bit. I mean, you raise an interesting point. Your your name is not your name. Right. <laughs> it's your father's name, your family name. Right. And, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say my last name um, on the podcast, but I do have a certain amount of pride for my last name mm-hmm. because my last name is pretty unique. Right. Um, right. And so that makes me want to keep it. Um, but if I had a more common last name, I don't know if I would care. Right. And that's, it's interesting because I've heard within my friend groups and different things and people have varying opinions. They might not like their surname. Maybe they had a troubled relationship with their father and they want to sort of have a symbolic break mm-hmm. in that sense. I thought that's something that is worthy of attention to. It doesn't mean that necessarily the most feminist thing, quote unquote, is to change your last name. So I think that that's an important intervention too to say. It's not a feminist litmus test by any means that you have to retain your father's surname. So, because it is still patriarchal in that sense, but our Western societies, U.S. culture, require us to have a surname. I know some couples do the kind of combination of names, which is I, I do like that. I do like that too. But for, for me, it just came down to when your name is Shannon O'Sullivan, you don't change it. And that's basically <laughs> what I've been telling people <laughs> over the years. It just it's easy to remember. Gives you free shots on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> lots of, lots of. So why not? Just oh, yeah. I would say about one out of every three bartenders, bouncers, etc., who checks my ID. Now people are gonna think I'm a regular bar goer, but it, it's true. But what? they always, all Irish people don't go to bars. <laughs> I don't speak for all Irish Americans, but it was interesting because that usually one out of every three will comment on my name. But I published under this name from my earlier pieces of journalism that I published and wrote, and I just remember thinking, well, I. It's a huge part of my, my identity. I don't want to have that kind of loss. And I've heard women really struggle with the decision and, you know, change their last names and still have a lot of questions about it. And, you know, you can always go back. It doesn't matter. So it's not permanent. I think that's important to remember, too. So I, I think the part for me that complicates it a bit is when children enter the picture. Yes. And this, I'm going to tell a story about my mom, and hopefully she doesn't get mad that I tell it. <laughs> um, but I found out that she never legally changed her last name until she had me. Oh, I didn't know so, that. So I didn't know that until pretty recently. Oh, okay. So I, for me, I kind of um, have that same thought that when children enter the picture, like I just think of, you know, like the worst case scenario where something happens and you're at a hospital and they need to know who the mother is and they, and having a different last name um, kind of scares me in that scenario. Yeah. Um, but Prior to children entering the picture, I don't see an issue with keeping your last name or a complication like that. 
it is interesting because that's the second kind of follow-up question I usually get of, oh, wow, you, you did not change your last name. That's interesting. Why? So first answer is always your name is Shannon O'Sullivan. Don't change it. Ha-ha. But then the next question usually in the series is, well, what if you have children? So, but it is, it's kind of fascinating because, of course, and there's always usually a presumption that one will have children. So not everybody can or wants children. But I roll with it. I'm kind of used to that line of questioning about future reproduction. <laughs> anyway, but it was one of the things where I think, well, you know, my children will always, because they say, well, what will you do with your children in terms of their surname? And I always comment, well, it's just for the ease of the situation. We'll just have them take my husband's last name just because they need to have a surname. I don't want to hyphenate them and give them a long last name. Mm -hmm. it, it's fine. So it's one of those things where for simplicity's sake, I'm just in the camp of they can just have my husband's surname. But, but then I've also had the next question is, well, won't that be confusing for your children that you don't share a last name? But that's all they'll ever know. So mm -hmm. I don't – and I – can explain to them in an age-appropriate way what's going on but I have heard that too if you're in a medical situation perhaps if you're traveling different last names on passports things like that but I think it's becoming more common it, procedurally speaking hopefully I won't be that much of an outlier in terms of having to go through a whole series of questioning and documentation of proving that my children are my children or that my husband is my husband but it is interesting but it's it's come up I mean even I uh, took my husband's credit card. It was his turn to buy the groceries. And they actually asked for ID. Uh, this was back in Denver. And I said, oh, it's my husband's card. And they said, oh, do you have the same last name? I said, no. So, I mean, I don't have – I don't carry around our marriage certificate. So, I am wearing – Why not? <laughs> I know. Doesn't, shouldn't one have that documentation at all times? But, yeah, but obviously I have a wedding ring. But these things are not, I mean, official state-sanctioned documents. So – you kind of rely on that surname to actually establish whether or not people are truly related. So, so maybe that will evolve over time, especially as this, my situation, my choice becomes a little bit more common. I'm thinking it's on the upswing. So, um, from what I've read, it is on the upswing, but I didn't really look at updated statistics. Yeah. Just in the articles that I looked at, and of yeah. course in the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still the only, just anecdotally, in my social circle group of friends. Well, for the most part, aside from my colleagues who um, in academia, that's much more common to not change your last name. So, Well, and I think a lot of it in that sense is if you have, like you said, if you're published, if you have accomplishments that are tied to your last name or a career that's tied mm -hmm. to your last name, um, that you would keep it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really a pain to prove that you are who you say you are when you do change your name as well. and. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a, a nice savings involved in not changing my last name. I didn't have to. Right. It's really expensive. Yeah, I saved update. a few hundred bucks, mm -hmm. so good Definitely. on me. And okay, <laughs> keep your wedding costs now. That's one way of doing it, so. All right. I think at this point we will get into um, Shannon and some of her personal experiences and her thoughts. Um, so first, I just want Shannon to tell us a little bit about what her story is, who she is, where she comes from, and you can interpret that however you'd like. Sure. <laughs> I love the open-ended question. <laughs> so um, so I'm from Buffalo, New York, where we are currently recording this, and for my first 26 years, lived in the north side of the city and the west side of the city, and didn't realize until I moved to Boulder, Colorado to pursue my doctoral degree in media studies four years ago 
just how much my hometown structured the type of person that I am, the likes, interests, and values that inform me and how I navigate the world. So that's always something I like to preface with, is that for me, coming from Buffalo, New York, truly shaped my character in a lot of ways. So, And coming from kind of a hybrid, working-class, middle-class family. So my dad's a you know, now-laid-off auto worker, and my mom you know, was a former you know, manager of a telemarketing company who experienced a lot of downward social mobility, like a lot of Western New York narratives, Rust Belt narratives. There's sporadic unemployment, etc. But my parents are both, you know, my dad's a former union member, my mom's a current union member for a CSEA. So the kind of understanding of being socially conscious, aware about any number of issues from gender equality, racial equality, unions, economic rights, those were always central in my upbringing and lots of discussions at the dinner table. So Kelsey, knowing me from a young age, knows I was quite political, yes. <laughs> quite opinionated, maybe perhaps a, an age that was not typical. But It, it wasn't typical, and, that's, and I've always admired that. Um, Shannon was one of the first people that I came across that knew enough to form an opinion. And I just remember being younger, being in middle school and high school and always feeling very tentative and like I didn't know enough to contribute to the conversation but Shannon always did and I really admired that about her and so another side effect of that was when we had a kind of middle school notebook when you were having you know oh, normal notebook. crushes on InSync and other boy band members and just a more typical heartthrob gaze that people the young women like to uh Direct at certain places. I directed my loving gaze at Jon Stewart, which is unusual. So in our notebook, we had pictures of Justin Timberlake, other heartthrobs, Ashton Kutcher, and then there was a few pages for me, which was just Jon Stewart. John Stewart. We were 12 <laughs> years old, and she had pictures of Jon Stewart pasted in our notebook. You know, but I, I, I'm glad that I didn't feel shy. I felt comfortable <laughs> expressing. And he, he was no spring chicken at that point either. I believe he was in his 40s, so <laughs> I think by that. Really? I think so, yeah. Dad's oh. getting up there. He, uh, he ages well. Yes, he's like a fine wine, so <laughs> a fine liberal wine. Anyway. <laughs> so, Shannon, our central question for the Womankind podcast is, what does it mean to be a woman in this year, 2017? <laughs> Um, and so I'm going to ask you that question in a very general way, sure. and then we'll get into the specifics of what it means to you. I was going to say specifically again, but I just <laughs> said that. Um, but what does it mean to be a woman? Yeah, so it's interesting in women and gender studies. So obviously my concerns with gender equality have entered my professional life and my areas of study. But one of the questions we often follow up with when we talk about women is we'll say, which women? So which women are we referring to? Because social experience is structured by so many intersecting factors, and we have the term intersectionality, which comes mm -hmm. from Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a famous African-American feminist and legal scholar, and talks about the nature of gender, race, class, sexual orientation as always being interlocking and never should be approached as discrete strands, as though gender is happening here, it's happening here. So it's complex, but it's definitely a more accurate way, I think, to describe social experience. But, so I think in saying that, it doesn't mean that we can't find points of continuity in moments where clearly we can see gender as a kind of primary analytic or primary 
entry point of a particular issue. So when we're looking at, you know, we have the Trump inauguration coming up in a few weeks. And so I think what was instructive about this particular election cycle is kind of the limits of identity politics in a lot of ways. So we have, you know, Hillary Clinton, who was uh, you know, the first major party candidate to be nominated for the presidency. But I think, you know, from my perspective, it was interesting because I felt that Bernie Sanders was actually the more feminist candidate. So it's kind of one of those things where I think in grappling with this, when we're dealing with issues of representation versus ideology and policy proposals, I think Hillary Clinton has certainly experienced sexism, no doubt about that. I think a lot of the issues that were brought forth as a result of her being the nominee in terms of standards that she was held to that obviously Donald Trump was not <laughs> were right. obviously instructive and, and worthy of attention. And of course, Donald Trump's comments about women, his treatment of women, and those larger ideological issues. So I think that shaped a lot of the kind of dominant discourse this past year in 2016, but of course feeding into 2017. Mm -hmm. So one of the landmark events that's going to be happening is the Women's March. It is the day after the inauguration. It, it is. January it's 21st. the 21st. Yeah. So there's going to be some affiliated, I'm actually going to an affiliated Women's March in Denver, Colorado. But there will be affiliated marches in Buffalo and Rochester as well. Excellent. So, but I think what's interesting is that with a lot of the kind of postings and descriptions of these events, it's, it takes the time to really describe who is under the umbrella term women, right? That includes mm -hmm. trans women, women of color, women with disabilities, queer women, you name it. Basically a very kind of inclusive idea. And I think that that's important because for a long time, if we're looking at the kind of history of dominant feminisms in the United States, women who are white, middle and upper middle class tend to be the kind of representative figure for the term women. So I think that that's important, and I think what we're in a lot of, you know, feminist blogs and other, and even comedy and what have you, you're getting more of a discussion of who do we mean by women, what affects us in a common way, what doesn't, and I think we can do that in a way that's kind of achieving solidarity and still working toward common goals without ignoring, erasing difference or erasing mm -hmm. or even oppressing other women who aren't as systemically advantaged, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this was a big year in um, people, not just women, people of all kinds, um, recognizing their privilege and really pausing to say, hey, wait a minute, that person over there doesn't have this that I have, or those that group of people over there doesn't have what I have. Um, and I think that the fact that some of those things are being brought to light could really help some things change a little bit. Um, but I think we've also seen some resistance in terms of that awareness, yeah. which is frightening, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, I always think of progress is not linear. I think we have this idea, especially in like US dominant U.S. history curriculum, let's mm -hmm. say. There's always an understanding of linear narrative of progress, that mm -hmm. things improve in a straight line. And we just, when actually looking at the historical record and social events and social mm -hmm. movements, that's absolutely not the case. So I well, I mean, the people that tell the story in a linear way are the people <laughs> that are in a position of power. That, and and that, isn't that convenient, right? <laughs> to say, well, everything's getting better, so no need to critically examine what's happening mm -hmm. now, or don't whine, or don't mm -hmm. these kind of feminizing terms, right? And that that whine. was actually oh, you're right. Yeah, it is. That was actually <laughs> a a little bit of a fear that I had if Hillary Clinton was in fact elected. Um, because I think we did see to a certain extent with the election of President Obama that 
um, certain people in certain places said, oh, well, we now have a black president, so racism is over, which is not the case. (laughs) Um, But it just is kind of reducing these things. Like you said, this is very complex. There are a lot of different things involved here, um, but that just kind of reduces all of the complexity to like a single issue, which none of it is. Right. Yeah. And so that was, so it was tough. So I'm hoping there's kind of my my aspirational, what, what does it mean to be a woman in 2017? And I think, you know, without being too monolithic or suggesting that there's one way to be a, you know, woman, however one defines that. But I think it's hopefully a kind of move toward a more intersectional feminist practice where you're not just focusing on quote unquote women's issues in a narrow sense where perhaps by women, a lot of people oftentimes mean women who are in the kind of white collar corporate sector, who are college educated, who are typically white, hopefully thinking about different types of struggles. So I think about the Black Lives Matter movement is led by primarily African-American women. And I think that that's definitely a feminist movement for sure and an intersectional feminist movement, but also placing you know, race at the forefront, but without losing an attentiveness to gender as well, and also remaining attentive to other other dynamics, but really getting the point across, right, in a powerful way. And it's an interesting moment because you have Black Lives Matter coming about at a time when we actually have a black president. So it's from 2008 to 2016, it's an interesting trajectory because we went from, at least in this dominant discourse with some, you know, white elites especially saying, hey, we're post-racial, now, you know, toward the end, we have a Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't think anybody, I mean, maybe there are still people somewhere, and I know that exist out there in the kind of blogosphere and the deep interwebs who think that we are, you know, post-racial and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, you'd be hard-pressed to find people who could, in a evidence-based way, suggest somehow that we are post-racial now. Because mm-hmm. I think it was, again, in that moment of 2008, this kind of, hopeful moment where people really misread what that meant, you know, and it doesn't mean that there isn't any meaning behind Barack Obama's election and re-election in terms of racial progress, but I think if you're looking at it systemically, but that's the issue that we often look at things at the level of the individual, not the systemic. I mean, and I've seen kind of generally um, people waking up to um, some of these issues and in a way where they, oh my gosh, I totally forgot what I was going to say. It's okay. No, we can, (laughs) you can can jump in here. We'll just talk talk right through it. it. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about, because this was such a difficult, I don't, you know, in 2017, I think it's kind of, in a way the veil has been lifted in a lot of ways, because I think we see a, a kind of a failure of a mainstream media system that likes to represent things as sort of happening at the individual level. So it's not interested, the system that's not really interested in looking at systemic problems and really diving deep into particular stories and narratives. It kind of likes to oversimplify things. So mm-hmm. it was really easy to make it seem like, well, you oh, know. Oh, I remembered what oh, I was gonna yes. say. I'm sorry. No, yeah. So like in a general way, I think that I saw a lot of people or heard a lot of people say like, you know, we all, know that racism is bad (laughs) so but it's a a failure to understand and see some of the nuances that are under the surface so I don't think when you talk to people that are in a position of privilege um, like I don't think they're denying that it's it's a negative thing but they 
don't understand the implications of what's going on. Definitely. And I think that's worthy of people, again, when they think of racism, they think of a particular race, this kind of caricature. Mm-hmm. They don't think of the school to prison pipeline. They don't think of right. the ways in which whiteness is so normalized that all other races are quite literally held up to a standard of right. white supremacy, which, you know, when people talk about white supremacy, people think of neo-Nazism, they think of the KKK, but actually the other definition of white supremacy is that the race is at the top of the racial hierarchy. I know as a white person, I often didn't think of race as applying to my life at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I, you know, oftentimes when we hear the word race, we immediately assume African-Americans, people of color. We don't assume, oh, we know white people, we have a race too, because we're just kind of cast as race neutral, as though mm-hmm. it's not structuring our lives in a very particular advantaging way, which it is. So, But yeah, I think people get hung up on somebody saying a racial slur or doing an individual act but not thinking about racism and its systemic complexity, which mm-hmm. from our curriculum to policing to the fashion and beauty industry, it permeates and structures so much of everyday life that it seems so normal to particularly people who have the privilege like us, white people who don't have to see it. Cause that's the thing I had to be told. So people, you know, that was a right. part of my awakening too, is I had to be informed. I had to read, I had to, get an understanding whereas people of color that's just they're navigating that world from day one right so, they they yeah. don't it's not learned right. in their case right because it's you know no choice involved mm-hmm. so i think it is it's one of those things where i think there has been a lot of productive discussion in terms of race and gender issues and class issues i was a little disturbed i think i think just been disturbed by the term identity politics how it's deployed how people understand it how oftentimes it can be removed from these larger systemic issues. And I think it can be, it's kind of being deployed now by people from advantage groups. You know, particularly we have this kind of new white supremacist movement. I know they call themselves the alt-right, but they're white supremacists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't want to give them that kind of legitimacy. But they're sort of using certain, we call it neoliberal language of, you know, individualism and identity. They're kind of co-opting that language to make it seem, quote-unquote, more acceptable to have these oppressive white supremacist beliefs. So I think I'm nervous about how some of that language is used and how we often think of identity as sort of a fixed thing happening at the individual level, but not a structural, wider systemic problem. So that's probably the one thing in terms of 2016 what I'm hoping for is that people understand, you know, how these systems are operating, and hopefully that people who are really resistant to it can have more of an openness and that's a tough thing for me as you know an instructor as somebody who wants to communicate ideas to people is how do I how do you reach people who are resistant it's challenging but mm-hmm. it's kind of up to us when we're in these more advantaged positions to take on that work but it's when people are resistant they close down any arguments I've been on those online debates where it disintegrates pretty quickly and you just end up being incredibly frustrated at the end of it so but I think a lot of people are kind of feeling that post-election almost hangover still of oh gosh like these kind of conversations with relatives close friends who have these extremely harmful beliefs how do you grapple with them so that's I don't have any answers in that regard for sure but I mean I think I've had this conversation with several people at this point um Mm -hmm. about what to do when you're in a situation like that and I guess the best thing that you can do is just try 
um, and just kind of understand that you're not going to change everyone's <laughs> mind, you're not going to sway everyone's opinion, but just to um, give it a shot. And I, I mean, I have to admit that I'm guilty of kind of stepping back and just listening in situations where maybe I should speak up. Um, but it, it is, it's hard. And it's especially hard to see, um, like, people who are claiming to be part of the, the um, alt-right white supremacists who are now in positions of power and mm. advising the person who is going to become our president. That's right. a really frightening thing to see. Yeah. Um, yeah, it talk about, you know, really in terms of progress not being linear. You go from having the first African-American president to a pretty openly white supremacist Donald Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. he I mean, it's hard-pressed to differentiate between him having white supremacist advisors and embracing and benefiting from because you know there's still those people who kind of defend Trump and saying oh he's not he just likes to profit from those things and use it for political ends it doesn't mean that he himself is white supremacist but to me it's not really that's like a sad point to try to make it's like oh well he's just using it for his own manipulative ends I whatever his intention is the results are pretty disastrous so and harmful to people of color and so many groups so to me whether or not he actually deep in his heart is a white supremacist it's really more the results of his actions that are and words which are have a material consequence i mean we're told since kindergarten that the people you surround yourself with are the people that you share values with and so obviously he's surrounding himself with people that he shares values with and i don't think there's any getting around that yeah to me there's no debate there but it's an interesting to see again as this unfolds on social media and mainstream media this discussion of like, well, is he really? I mean, it's it, come on, it's mm-hmm. it's getting to be. Either way, the res- the result is is pretty harmful. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think in getting back to you were talking about your tentativeness, which I've had too in terms of speaking up, especially in a situation where there's a lot of conflict. I think how we're socialized from the time we're young women, young girls, mm-hmm. is to quote unquote be nice, be quiet, don't ruffle any feathers, and I think. I was fortunate in that sense in that I was encouraged to question authority, speak up, but it was I was not well received necessarily. And I think you can always point to certain aspects of, you know, especially my gender where women with opinions, strong opinions, I think for the most part there's still a significant degree of resistance. And I'm always kind of fascinated by not necessarily even resistance from men, but also women who've internalized these kind of dominant patriarchal values. It's not like they think about it that way. They don't think, oh, this woman upsets me or bothers me because she has an opinion because she's a woman. It's just this idea that's unbecoming, mm-hmm. you know. So not, not maybe like a lady. Not ladylike. Not ladylike. So I think that I've kind of been reflecting on that and knowing that we'd be having this conversation about the ways in which people who feel comfortable talking about politics, contributing to a political discussion, because you were saying, like, when you were younger, you didn't feel like you really knew a lot. Mm-hmm. I think so much of especially in U.S. culture, I can, which I can speak to more directly, it's just this idea of politics still kind of being this male-dominated domain. Like, you know, that men discuss politics, it's the public sphere, the private sphere belongs to women, the kind of domestic culture. And again, it's a more complex narrative. If you look at throughout U.S. history, it's not that binaristic, but I think that there's still that legacy there, this idea that when women are active politically, absolutely held to a different standard, but also even just those kind of interpersonal interactions. I, I still get resistance to when women are actually speaking mm-hmm. our minds about politics. 
it kind of almost this idea of like, you know, let's not talk about that. That's not really appropriate. But I don't think, even compared to my husband on social media, I've had his relatives, his conservative relatives, really go after me pretty aggressively, but not say a word to him at all when he was sharing similar opinions via post. So I always found that interesting. And again, this is anecdotal, but why is it that when he shares his opinion, political opinion on social media, it goes unremarked upon and unquestioned. But when I do, that's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Why is that? So I think, and they don't think of themselves as sexist people, but ultimately it doesn't matter. So. <laughs> right. It's, it's like you said before, it's more about the actions than, than the result. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People get hung up, I think, a lot on intention. I think whenever we're talking about racism and sexism, people get so hung up in terms of the dominant discourse of the media and whether or not this person is really a racist. Are they really a sexist? But ultimately, let's focus on their actions, mm-hmm. their words, what they said. I can say this while they said these things, which ha- contributed to this trend, these types of effects. So I think how we frame things at this kind of individual intention level is definitely toxic and definitely something that's very hard to cut through, mm-hmm. that's for sure. So I think we're going to move into a lighter note Sounds here. Good. Well, it may not be lighter. Because <laughs> my question to you is... Um, we've talked in a general sense of what it means to be a woman and some of those nuances. Um, what does it mean specifically to you mm-hmm. to be a woman? Yeah, it's interesting, especially at this moment, because I'm grappling with those ideas of women as a social category. What does that mean? It's such a, a vast group. But at the same time, there are things that, points of continuity, things that tie us together. But I think for me, in terms of, wanting to sort of practice intersectional feminism, you know, where I'm thinking about social injustices that are interlocking, such as race, gender, and social class. You know, how do I approach that in my daily life from my position as a college-educated white woman, right? So that's kind of the challenge of what actions do I take? What do I do? And I think for me, just a few things that come to mind in terms of me working at a university campus is that we obviously particularly at CU Boulder, there is an incredibly high rate of sexual assaults. And these are kind of things that I think, one of the things that structures my life the most as a woman that I think about a lot is that I just can't walk alone at night, (laughs) you know? And in terms of my social class too, it's interesting because I didn't always have access to a car. So you're kind of trapped in your own house. I mean, unless you can, they didn't have, you know, not everyone has Uber, Lyft or can afford these things. I mean, taxis, whatever. You're kind of, and, and then you're still not necessarily safe, right? Because you don't know who your driver is. You think a lot about safety in that way. And I think that's kind of one of the things that in terms of being a woman, that kind of vulnerability that structures my life and how I navigate the world, I've been thinking about quite a bit, especially in relation to this kind of backlash with having this, with this Trump presidency, right? Like somebody who can just openly say, I'm grabbing pussy. It's one of those things that I am thinking, wow, you know, what, of course, messages we're sending to victims of sexual assault, but just all, all women, we're all vulnerable in that sense to, you know, to varying degrees, but we can't just walk alone at night. So I think about my students who are young women and it's scary because they're not safe around. Typically their perpetrators are men that they know. So that's absolutely, there's a very high percentage of women who are sexually assaulted by for it's more than half. Right. Yeah. People that they know. And it's what's so frightening for me is we had a very uh, brave young woman and it's sad because it does take this amount of courage. She's incredibly courageous. She came forward and, and identified herself. 
there was a she was sexually assaulted at a St. Patrick's Day party a couple years ago um, on or near campus in Boulder, and she finally came forward. And of course, this her rapist was cast as by his attorney and all of this as though you know he was suffering such a grave injustice and he wasn't going to be able to go to medical school now. I mean, this is such an intersection of you know in terms of race, gender, and class. It isn't just that he's a white male. He's a white male from an incredibly affluent family. I mean, this is, <laughs> uh, was it Brock Turner? Because yes. that's yes. essentially the same thing that it, happened in that situation. Exactly. So it was interesting because you had that intersection of class as well, you know, which I think is important to point out. Absolutely. Because you can afford that kind of legal defense and all of this. Doesn't mean that working class white men don't have, you know, perhaps an advantage, certainly, of course, in the legal system, but especially if you also have money behind you. I mean, there's no doubt about that being a contributing factor. So the his uh, victim came forward and she identified herself because that's the kind of risk you take even just identifying yourself. You, you did nothing wrong because you are put on trial. So, so I'm thinking about these young women who are you know roughly 10 years younger than me, and I'm frightened for them because I'm thinking, you know, I've made it this far and I feel very fortunate not to have experienced that. And I just... It just breaks my heart because I know the way in which they're put on trial too, you know. And this is what we're seeing often. And it's interesting in terms of thinking about linkages and commonality when we look at particularly black victims of police brutality. Even when they're murdered, they're put on trial, right? I mean, more so sometimes than they're. I mean, I've seen many like published like criminal records in those situations, right. which if um, the person involved was of a different race or a different um, group, would that be published? Exactly. So this idea that they're responsible for their own murders. I mean, this is like these, you know, we're looking at Alton Sterling, we're looking at Freddie Gray, and countless, and then Sandra Bland as well. We talk, and there was a lot of attention with Sandra Bland about the intersection of both race and gender mm -hmm. in her case as an African-American woman. And I think in terms of the video I saw with her and her interaction with the police officer, it, there is a gender dynamic as well, in addition to that racial dynamic, as you know, multiple contributing factors. But yeah, I mean, you have people who are victims of crimes, and what is a perfect victim? And I think that is was so troubling. So I mean, getting back to, in terms of as a woman, so I think about as a, an instructor for these young women, that I obviously want to be a supportive resource for them, and we have some level of training on that in terms of mandated reporting, but how do we kind of create an environment where we are, and also thinking about the male college students as well, to make sure that they're practicing bystander intervention, that they're taking this seriously, but it's so hard. Well, I think that that, um, so this, this generation of students that are currently in high school, currently in middle school, um, they're the anti-bullying generation, so they've mm -hmm. grown up with that um, kind of uh, message that they've received all throughout school and so um, my students that are in high school they know what it means to be a bystander and they know to take action and that's something that Absolutely. they've learned kind of all along whereas I don't think we ever learned no, anything I, like that no, so so I think that is something that may um, start to change mm -hmm. um, as time goes on um, which I find I find pretty interesting that they do they they can define the word bystander they know how to take action um, so hopefully that's something that over time we'll just be more in the forefront as the action to take in those types of situations yeah and I think so for me as being 
a woman instructor on campus. That's an issue I'm thinking about a lot. Also, in 2017, particularly because of this kind of assault on Planned Parenthood and reproductive rights, it's so, again, in terms of this idea that we have a linear narrative of progress, I think, and I know for you and I, going to a Catholic education, obviously a very pro-life environment, and this being the standard by which everyone politically was approaching the issue, it's been interesting because there's been a lot of inroads at the state and local level regarding reproductive rights. So I think, particularly in terms of rolling back reproductive rights, but I think another issue within that is, of course, with Planned Parenthood is that it's frontline healthcare for a lot of women who are poor, women of color, again, the more vulnerable populations within the category of women. And I think that's another area in which I'm trying to think more deeply about actions that I can take in solidarity and support in that regard. So, so as far as, you know, explicitly, you know, gender-based women's issues that I'm trying to become more informed about, more active within, I would definitely say, you know, sexual assault, especially because I'm in higher education, working in higher education. And then, of course, reproductive rights, healthcare. I mean, the list can be never-ending, but I think it's always important to kind of focus on what you can manage at a given moment. And I think because of some of the rolling back of some of those rights and some of the kind of more pressing issues that have arisen, that's why I'm focusing on that. So So we're going to move into a segment that I call Stories of Subversion. And the story that I have is actually very much connected to what you were just talking about, the issue of safety. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think if you are a woman and you are a person who's vulnerable, um, it is something that you think about. And it is something that other people, um, men in in most cases, don't have to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, So my story centers on um, a group of three women in Mexico City, um, and they call themselves... Las hijas de violencia, um, which means the daughters of violence. And um, it's a group of women. They're in their mid to late 20s, and their names are Ana Beatrice, Ana Karen, and Betsa Beth. Um, and this is their response to being harassed in the street because apparently in Mexico City there is a major issue with yeah. um, catcalling and um, women being harassed. And so when they're harassed on the street, they play this punk song that they've written and recorded um and it's called sexista machista and they basically put on a performance in the street so this is like in real time so let's say someone cat calls one of the people in the group in that moment they bust out like a cell phone or like a boom box and play the song um and then they perform this like i guess dance for lack of a better way of putting it uh, and then they bring out a gun that shoots confetti. That's great. Um, <laughs> and so I guess what happens in that moment is the person who catcalled them or harassed them, they have this moment of fear where they think they're going to get shot, and then glitter comes out of the gun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it's, I think it's hysterical, actually. Um, but it was just their their way, this, these women, um, their way of combating that. And so... Um, I have some quotes here um, from some of the women, and it says, the harasser will say, I just say that you were pretty, or I was just looking, and I say, well, it's just confetti, and it's just a a song, (laughs) Um, and it shows how art can be such a powerful weapon, Um, and that's from an article on Fusion.net with a quote from one of the girls in the group, Um, and I mean, 
the other thing that they mentioned in the article is that it's just basically the the canned response to that situation would just be like I know in that situation I would probably just smile even though why am I smiling in that situation I would smile ignore it and walk away Mm -hmm. Um, and so I guess it's just that element of surprise of doing something back to the person who's harassing you in that situation and the people that they've done this to are like deeply offended by it (laughs) when they are the ones that should the the people who are being harassed are the ones that should be offended so um, I just found that to be um, a pretty awesome act of subversion. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I, I'm incredibly impressed by that because it's clever, creative, mm-hmm. and does so much because it actually hopefully ends up fostering that kind of empathy mm-hmm. to say, you know, you, you think what you're doing is harmless, and hey, but isn't what we did harmless too? But so it kind of, it really kind of reverses the script a little bit, which mm-hmm. I always appreciate when that's, mm-hmm. when that's happening. Jessica Williams from The Daily Show, speaking of awesome, awesome ladies, she did a really funny bit a couple of years ago about street harassment. And one of the things that she did to combat it, you know, and I can't curse on here, but to act like a, you know, effing psycho. And she said, literally, she shows her walking down the street, like, you know, dancing around, doing all this crazy stuff. Basically, the only way to ensure that she would not be remarked upon or catcalled is to act so irregularly <laughs> which acts so abnormally that people would just be weirded out by you and mm-hmm. not even want to approach you or say anything so so that was kind of her way of making her point was to say this is the only way I can avoid my appearance not being commented on by men as I'm you know again in the public sphere right mm-hmm. you know it's the idea of that women are we safe on the street and in a lot of ways we're taught from a young age that we're not and so we have to walk a certain way I think about it all the time, not looking at people, all the things that I have to do. I take public transit quite a bit, and it's hard, but it's just something that I've adapted to, and it shouldn't be that way, but it's part of being a woman. So, again, back to the hashtag, not all men, but hashtag yes, all women. Because, so, again, <laughs> men will respond to that by saying, some men will say, but I don't do that stuff. But the point is, is that that's great that you don't do that, but we still have to... All of us have to navigate the world in a certain way as a result. Did you have a story of subversion that you'd you know, like to share? It's interesting. I have well, just a couple of thoughts because there's been a lot more discussion, too, about equal pay for equal work. Mm-hmm. So in Iceland, oh, I lady saw workers did a, did a walkout. I think mm-hmm. it was at 2.36 p.m. or whatever the time would be relative to basically when they technically stop earning money for the rest of the day compared to their male counterparts. There was an incredible uh, walkout protest in Poland this year where women wore all black, again, in support of and preventing the rollback for the rollback of reproductive rights. That was a a really impressive moment, and I'm hoping that some of that energy can be channeled in the Women's March in a couple of weeks. But, yeah, I was trying to think about, in terms of my own personal anecdotes, I remember, and, you know, I don't know how advisable this is, but... It's something I did in the moment that was certainly subversive, but I was actually at a show just about five years ago here in Buffalo at a town ballroom, actually. Great venue. Nothing Great wrong venue. with the venue. But uh, I was standing by the door, and I was with a couple of friends, and my husband had just finished. He had played a show earlier there, and waiting to kind of pack up his stuff. And this guy, it wasn't even just that he slapped my ass. He actually just like rubbed it and it was just really no manner of touching me without my permission is Mm -hmm. acceptable but it was particularly invasive and I was so shocked I was like you know a couple curse words 
And I kind of took me a minute or two to get my bearings to kind of grasp what happened. Again, not a major thing, but I was like really unsettled by it. So he actually, so when my husband came back over, getting our stuff ready to go in the car, we're still standing back by the door. Same guy walks past and I lock eyes with him. And I walked over and repeatedly slapped him as hard as I could in the ass because (laughs) I wanted him to have a sense of what that's like. Mm -hmm. Again, not necessarily the most advisable thing, but I, you know, repeatedly did that and said, how do you like it? And, you know, he was pretty stunned, obviously. Mm -hmm. And my, of course, final way to close out the situation was to say, don't ever touch me or any other woman ever again. So I was really thinking that that was going to sink in. But I remember he was pretty ruffled by it, and my now husband's comment to the guy was, you know, don't think about doing anything, you know, retaliating. <laughs> so, but then Matt went outside later, and because he was still kind of getting his stuff together, and he said the guy seemed pretty flustered and weirded out. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that is a lasting message, but I, I don't know. I hope so. I hope it's like the people that are, you know, the receiving end of the girls with the, the glitter guns. Right. They're, they're stunned and yeah. hopefully will think about right. the reaction. And I think it was strange because when I would tell that story, a lot of responses I got were that that was kind of reckless on my part because what if he, you know, could have turned the tables and, you know, hit me back or something. But well, that's, but again, that's that, that fear right. and vulnerability. Yeah. And yeah. Well, and I tell, it was funny because when I TA'd for a gender studies course this past semester, and it's interesting that kind of, you know, we have 18, 19 year old students who are thinking about some of these ideas for the first time. So it's kind of interesting to watch them develop and think deeply about mm-hmm. gender and how it structures their lives and how they move through the world. But this girl came up and she said, well, and a lot of, I notice a lot of young women will be almost resistant to the idea that there is sexism, almost like they, there's, I think there's almost a part of them that really wants to believe we just live in a meritocracy where all things are equal. So there's some degree of resistance even with women. But she was saying, well, you know, I get free drinks. That was kind of her comment as to why it isn't so bad. And I said, well, just briefly, I said, well, are those drinks really free or did it come with an expectation? So Good question. Right. So, but it was interesting to kind of watch her work through this in conversation. But Well, that was something yeah. that actually Jen and I talked about last week about how it's, the generation coming up, um, we talked about how a lot of millennial, well, I don't know numbers specifically, but some millennial female voters um, who didn't like Hillary Clinton just either didn't vote or were just yeah. kind of like, we'll get the next one in terms of yeah. the next female presidential candidate. Like this was kind of like a run of the mill thing for them in some cases mm-hmm. where they um, maybe take for granted that women can be in positions of power. Interesting. Yeah, I'd like to read more about that because mm-hmm. I know I was in, of course, in a lot of kind of leftist circles regarding women, feminists discussing what to do because mm-hmm. there was, you know, Hillary was a very flawed candidate for a number of reasons. Not, of course, having to do with her gender, but <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a difficult vote for a lot of folks. You know, do you vote for Jill Stein? Another, you know, not major party, but, you know, Green Party candidate. But again, all this drama with the Electoral College, it's not one person, one vote. And you know, for me, it was a really trying decision, but in my mind, it was kind of, well, this is kind of an emergency, you know, can't really work. A progressive movement really can't achieve much with a Trump presidency other than be on the defensive. And I, I think we can do a little bit more than that, but certainly it, it's been a, a challenging road and not a preferred outcome. 
But I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that in terms of millennial women who sat it out because we're not seeing if it was something that they took for granted because of not thinking about gender in the same way. I'd, I'd be interested to read more about that. So. Well, we can look into that yes. for next week. <laughs> we can, absolutely. Um, so at this point, I think we're going to wrap up, but is there anything that you wanted to add? Anything you think the world needs to know about <laughs> women um, or anything that we haven't touched on just to, to kind of tie it together? Yeah, I mean, I just hope that people generally listen to multiple perspectives from multiple women. <laughs> Hopefully that, that women are at the forefront of these discussions and there's a, there's a long way to go, but I just think as far as our own individual responsibility, I think listening to other women helps too and is critical and important, especially if they are women who do not share your social experience and location. So I think sometimes it can be overwhelming to think about, am I doing the right things? Am I not, am I basically doing my part in the appropriate way. I think it's important not to get necessarily too hung up on yourself in that regard. I think it's easy to do that. We have a culture that kind of promotes that. And just remember that this is bigger than all of us, even though some things affect us directly, but just that we're hopefully going to be part of a larger movement. I think that's my biggest goal and hope is that people, especially women, situate themselves in solidarity with other women as part of larger movements and that it's not going to be some kind of Hero, heroin narrative instead of hero narrative <laughs> of you know getting us to some point of pro- quote unquote progress so again no definitive answers but I just hope people keep staying engaged and I think I've been fortunate in that regard that my career track and my background fostered a sense of being able to stay current with the news and know different sources I can look to for information so I'm not just relying on certain perspectives and that's, and not to be intimidated, hopefully to just try to learn as much as you can and mm-hmm. not be afraid to raise your voice because mm-hmm. I think especially for women in our society, it's taboo still to be opinionated mm-hmm. and expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. So to not let basically people bring you down and make you self-conscious about voicing your opinion. And that's what we're here for, to have <laughs> a conversation about it. Um, so some wise words from one of the wisest women <laughs> I know. Um, so... Thank you for listening to our second episode of the Womankind Podcast. Um, Listen for future episodes.